Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. As he says himself in the note he sent me, our guest today is C. Michael Smith, PhD, a.k.a. Mikal. He is a clinical psychologist, medical anthropologist, and an international shamanic teacher who has been working on four continents during the past six years. He is director of Crow's Nest Centers for Shamanic Studies International, with communities in France, Belgium, South Africa, and the USA. He is the author of Psychotherapy and the Sacred and Jung and Shamanism in Dialogue, In July 2012, he was the keynote speaker for the International Conference on Amazonian Shamanism in Iquitos, Peru. In addition to directing Crow's Nest International, he has lectured and taught on Jungian psychology and shamanism at the University of Chicago and many other places in Brussels and in Paris and uh, he may be contacted through the Crow's Nest website, which we list when we upload the conversation. So, welcome, Michael. Thank you, Joanna. I'm delighted to be here with you. <laughs> yeah, me too. It's, it seems like we're going to have a good time. So... um Michael, I'd like you to play with me and go back to that little 12-year-old who was let loose in his father's study amongst fabulous books and a window looking out on the forest. What happened? childhood and living in this uh, community where uh, there was a forest just 50, 75 feet, something like that, from the back door with huge trees. There's an old mature forest. And uh, I would dream and, uh, you know, daydream. And uh, as I got a little bit older, I started calling out that there was a bathroom window in this study. Uh, there's a bathroom. And I would climb up on the roof and uh, wasn't supposed to do that. And my parents never knew. But I climb up there and sit and watch the sunset uh, go down. And uh, there I had an awakening. Uh, I saw my whole life unfold before me one evening. The sun was down. The skies were kind of a deep magenta, pinkish, orangish color. Mm-hmm. And there was a coolness in the air. A fog was rolling in over the treetops. And in that fog, I saw myself... Uh, as some type of uh, physician, and uh, I was working in South Africa. 
and uh, I was uh, in a savanna, uh, surrounded by a particular kind of tree that I've never forgotten. And uh, then I forgot that uh, that vision I had for like 42 years until uh, one day I was entering the savanna mm-hmm. uh, near the Kalahari Desert in uh, South Africa, and I recognized the trees. And I was going there because of a shamanic festival in which I was the, the king pen. A friend of mine invited me to help put this thing together. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so there I was, surrounded by those trees and those uh, tents that are like Arab tents. Uh, and uh, just as was in my uh, vision 42 years earlier, and I suddenly had an aha, like, oh my God, that vision I had when I was a kid has literally come true. And here I am surrounded by healers, Sangomas, psychotherapists, whoever came to this conference. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was in my role, kind of a, like a Dr. Albert Schweitzer fantasy, you know, uh, because he was somebody I read about as a kid. Yes. And uh, uh, so uh, that was a mind-blowing experience, that uh, I could have an intimation of my life uh, as it would be literally 42 years in advance. Mm-hmm. And with those trees like the baobabs in the Little Prince story? Transplanted from Australia into oh. South Africa in, I think, uh, the 1800s. Uh, it seems like they told me that. And I forget the name now. It's a certain kind of um, tree where the, they're t- they grow tall and the foliage, uh, foliage clusters in clumps at the top of the tree. So they're very clumpy, like cauliflower. That's a baobab, or baobab, I think so. That's the little prince tree. Uh, yeah. So. Tell me about the relationship between um, being a storyteller and a shaman. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, the shamanism is the mother of all the arts, you know. Uh, music, myth-making or storytelling, uh, psychodrama, um, sculpture, match-making, talisman, amulet, jewelry-making, you know, all that and uh, more. And uh, the storytelling uh, of any indigenous culture would uh, be inculcating uh, the values and possibilities as as open to that culture to the people, uh, not just for entertainment, but as a way of transmitting the values of the ancestors and the community and the ways of life that worked well and uh, kept the community uh, healthy. You know, some of these stories, mm-hmm. and it was Jung that pointed this out, mm-hmm. uh, some of these stories were used in initiations, not just around the family f- or the tribal fires at night. Right. And uh, they would have characters in them, sometimes trickster figures, but the, the characters would be misbehaving. And then the elders would point to that and say, see there, like Manabozo, thou shalt not do that. And in this way, through the storytelling, inculcate the uh, community-honoring, earth-honoring values to uh, the young people. Mm. So it's storytelling as a medicine, I think, mm-hmm. in the larger mm-hmm. sense of that word. Mm-hmm. So how is it, Michael, that some people like yourself can 
transform the imagination into medicine. Hmm. Well, I think we can all do that. Um, okay, because uh, in uh, the shamanic view, and in many mystical traditions too, uh, the place of our personal power is within us, in the invisible realm. Uh, what sometimes called the mental realm or, or the mind, but mm-hmm. it's more than thoughts. It is thoughts, beliefs, attitudes, emotions, uh, as well as the influences of our wounds and the belief systems we form out of that. So what happens inside us gets manifest outside us in some form sooner or later. As we uh, uh, live inside ourselves, so our world will reflect that. And uh, shamans are famous for working with the imagination, but they really work with anything invisible uh, mm-hmm. in the inner life of the person and the community and nature. Uh, and the imagination is one doorway. It's like the mind screen that allows you to see certain things. But there is a, a empathic felt sense of this material as well in shamanism that's often not highlighted. Uh, because we focus on the visual uh, uh, circus and show, you know. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the felt, intuitive, empathic, uh, inciting that comes in a uh, good uh, shamanic mental process, uh, it's available to everybody. We all have that if we know how to cultivate it. We don't have it well developed in this culture, uh, which is modern Western civilization mm-hmm. becoming a world culture. And a lot of our problems are because of that, because the, the kind of uh, felt, sensing, empathy is a basic shamod, shamanic mode of uh, consciousness, fundamental. And uh, it's an expression of the Gaian mind, if you will, mm-hmm. which is uh, an, an, an intending, sentient, intelligent, creative being. Yeah. So the imagination can focus, help you focus, and open up and inquire further. And uh, if we say our self-concept is a self-image, by changing uh, that directive image, we can change the direction of our lives. Same way with our health. Yes. If we're holding images that are, are full of uh, imbalance or sickness or grandiosity or inferiority or whatever, as we are inside, so we will be outside. That's very interesting. It's a, it's a part of your um, practice. You are a medical anthropologist. That's very interesting. Could you talk to us about being a medical anthropologist? Yes, that happened when I was a student at University of Chicago, and I was putting together a doctorate in psychology, a creative one, and uh, trying to get it licensed, which I did do. But uh, one of my teachers was Sudhir Kakar, uh, a man from India who uh, was a medical anthropologist and a psychoanalyst. And uh, he was a mentor of Eric Erickson, the great uh, mm-hmm. child psychiatrist, psycho- psychoanalyst. Mm-hmm. And uh, he instructed him on Indian culture and psychology when Erickson was writing Gandhi's Truth. Well, I had read that book, and I loved Gandhi. And uh, so I had to study with this man who became a doctoral father for me, and he just took me into the world of medical anthropology. And what he did, he spent years in the field in India, Sri Lanka, 
uh, Taiwan, Southeast Asia, and he brought all these videos in. And I helped find translators, and we analyzed every one, every shaman that he worked with. And I discovered that uh, there were universals, that uh, the healing was public, not private, not like Western medical model or psychotherapeutic model where everything's in secrecy and shame inside an office that no one else can have uh, access to. Hmm. But the shamanic healing happened in the daytime, a lot of times, sometimes at night, but right out in the open, there would be a temple or a shrine. Uh, there would be people from the village, other sick people too, and their families. The whole family would be there. Uh, this was cross-cultural in Asia and Southeast Asia. And uh, I found that fascinating. And as I began to study uh, other cultures, uh, particularly in America, Central and South America, I found the same thing. And uh, so I thought, okay, shamanism is about healing to altered states in the larger sense. Uh, but uh, it's much more than that. It's about healing in contexts that are communal and uh, environmental and architectural. And uh, they bring the weight of the sacred and the, of the traditions and myths of the whole community to bear on the affliction. And uh, so uh, this fuels my future studies and my writings to study other cultures, particularly indigenous cultures, and to uh, learn what I can about what they do so that I can help my own culture enrich its own understanding of medicine and psychotherapy and this sort of thing. That's been my, my real motivation, you might say. And to date, I've studied with or worked with or done ceremonies with more than 150 shamans from more than 40 different cultures. Mm-hmm. And most of that because I'm a member of the Circle de Suggest Ancestral in Paris, and I teach for them, and so I teach with 85 other shamans, most of them from indigenous cultures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, in your experience, in your lifetime experience, what, um, speak to us about the crossroads between being a psychologist and a shaman, and how, uh, you practice healing through the intersection of these two things. Mm. Yes. Okay, well, the shamanic calling came first, and uh, I looked around my culture to see where can I do what I do, and uh, my first uh, impulse was uh, medicine, and then uh, I decided no, it's not quite it, and I went into theology, became an ordained minister at a parish, and became a healer, uh, and uh, I saw that wasn't the best shingle. People said, well, you're practicing shamanism, but not Christianity. Mm-hmm. So I left the church, and I thought, okay, psychotherapy looks like you could give me a shingle, and nobody can tell me I can't do it. So right. uh, that's that's why I headed to Chicago, and uh, to get training for that, so I could get the credentials and have power to practice my shamanic craft. But I realized another problem, and that was that uh, we have no culture uh, cartography or uh, model, theoretically, for doing this kind of work. And so I had to create one. And uh, so uh, Jung was the most appealing to me since I was a young man, since my early 20s. Mm-hmm. And so I went to Jung Institute, uh, I graduated with a diploma, in uh, analytical psychology while I was doing my doctorate, and I integrated that 
uh, model into uh, my dissertation and two subsequent books, and, to, and there's more coming. So the first thing was to create a model uh, that could legitimate what I was doing, and that was very important. Uh, when I was doing this, uh, Michael Harner was in Connecticut, and he moved to uh, Mill Valley. There were increasing numbers of people in the Bay Area who were uh, psychotherapists and uh, uh, also uh, uh, trained uh, shamanic practitioners from the Foundation for Shamanic Studies that Michael Harner had uh, developed. And uh, one of them got their license revoked for practicing shamanism. And this added fuel to me getting my theory down and solid. And the first book came out, Psychotherapy in the Sacred, uh, won the Sigmund Freud Gradiv Award. And the second one, uh, Young and Shamanism and Dialogue, has become a classic. And this established, it's not the only books that did this, but it, this established a legitimacy, at least for integrating it with a Jungian framework, something that's highly, uh, let's say, resonant with shamanism and known in the public. And uh, this, this book, now 15 years old, uh, just keeps selling and selling, and it increases each year. And, uh, you know, it's alive in many universities. And, uh, and the okay. phenomenon of it is that people need a framework for, if they're going to have a professional practice and make a difference in their profession, they've got to have this. And Jung, was, uh, he said himself he was... Uh, a kind of medicine man for his tribe, uh, if I may quote him, he says, uh, I ask myself time and again why there's no man in our epoch who could see at least what I was wrestling with. It's presumably the ancient functional relationships of the medicine man to his tribe. And he, when he said tribe, he's, he's talking about his culture and his civilization, and not just the individual patients that he's trying to heal or serve. But he was trying to do a work of healing on the whole culture. Um, unfortunately, Jung died before uh, ecology was born. Jung died in 61. So there's a lot of writings from Jung about the healing power of nature and how important it is to get on your natural foundations. And dreams are natural phenomena that can help heal you and so on. And you can do something like a shamanic journey, what he called active imagination, you know, and, mm -hmm. and interact uh, with the inner life and, and uh, tap the spiritual resources from within yourself. Also is great stuff. But he said nothing about how to be a caretaker of the environment, how to be an earth keeper, a gardener. Beautiful. Uh, yeah. Uh, so he, he lacked that, but that's because of his era. Uh, nobody knew, none of the world's traditions knew, right. that uh, we were actually fouling the air and poisoning the planet and uh, engineering our own extinction. So it's not a flaw in Jung, it's just a limitation. Uh, and his writings. So I've been trying to bring that out more in my work. Very, very, very good. Um, what is your um, experience of, or how do you help people to reconnect with the fact that they are of the earth, we are of the earth? connected with nature first thing and so I have these uh, retreat centers uh, I own the one in southwest Michigan but in Europe I have to rent them mm -hmm. and uh, same way in South Africa there's a large camp that we rent but the idea here is first get people 
in a place where they can begin connecting with the wind, the water, the sun, the moon, the stars, the elements, uh, the animals, and connect more deeply with the trees. But my central teaching is really about a fundamental shift that we need from a, a dominator basis of life that's driven by greed to uh, a heart-open, earth-honoring, and respectful uh, way of life towards all beings. Mm-hmm. And so I developed, uh, based on shamanic sources and Jungian sources and focusing sources, uh, a, a shamanic model of the heart so that people could find uh, their heart uh, and know how to skillfully listen to it, be inspired and guided by it, and uh, begin to put that into practice as they connect with the trees, the animals, the elements, and then uh, also take that back from these uh, retreats and workshops into their neighborhoods, into their jobs, into the polis in which they live, and institute small changes there by themselves being the change that they are seeking. Mm-hmm. And speaking and acting out of that richness in the more immediate communities that inscribe their lives. So this is what the Crow's Nest workshops are. And uh, before you tell us what the Crow's Nest is and how it came about. Please tell us about the crow. <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, shamans are famous for having guides that appear in uh, animal form and other forms, you know, uh, human form, uh, alien form, uh, elemental form, and so on. But the animal forms are, are pretty uh, omnipresent in shamanism. Uh, they appear as visions or images of the essence of a species, let's say, and sometimes beyond that. Uh, and uh, the crow came to me early on, and uh, I underwent a shamanic initiation uh, with a Cherokee teacher, and uh, the crow was what came during that ceremony about 20 years ago, and it's been one of my chief guides uh, in my shamanic work, but not the only one by any means. Mm-hmm. And um, in uh, see, 2002, when I was 52, um, I had a booming psychotherapy practice and was uh, pleased with my, uh, my two books and thinking about what to do next. And my mother got sick and uh, suddenly died uh, in a very brief illness. And uh, this loss threw uh, me into a period of uh, withdrawal and grieving. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was a particularly violent, uh, aggressive cancer that she had. And uh, I, I was not really afraid of death. I mean, I can ready to go at any time. But mm-hmm. uh, seeing what she went through, the pain was unbelievable. And no amount of morphine could stop it. They said that it would just simply kill her. And uh, I wish I could have taken her to Belgium, you know, for euthanasia. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. uh, um, it was horrible to watch uh, someone you love fall apart and be in agony for five weeks, which was the length of it. And uh, so that, I came out saying, okay, death comes quickly. I knew this, but wow, <laughs> yeah. out of the blue. Yeah. And, uh, and it's not death I'm afraid of, it's that pain. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. And uh, that was humbling that I was afraid of something. And uh, so I went into retreat uh, for about two months. Uh, and out of it came a vision for a retreat center. I had already had one, a small scale one, but I wanted something secluded so neighbors couldn't see it, prying eyes couldn't see it. And so I began a search for land. And mm-hmm. uh, I ended up with a place that, that I now call Crow's Nest. Uh, and there were crows in the trees, and there was a golden eagle when I walked the property that uh, landed on what's now the medicine launch, an wow. old horse barn. Yeah. And uh, just looking at it, it was a junkyard, actually, and I had to clean it up, which took two years. And uh, semi-truckloads of trash hauled out of the forest and um, cleaned it up. And uh, I, I think at the fourth year... Uh, I said, okay, I'll do some workshops here now. Yeah. And uh, bam, 25 people showed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and then invitations to Europe and so on. And things just exploded from there. So Crow's Nest was really born in grief and loss. Mm-hmm. And the inward searching, uh, driven by, okay, if... This can happen to me if I can lose my quality of life that fast, if I can die that fast, and it may happen, uh, what yet remains to be unlived? And what is it that I'm here to do that I haven't yet done? And uh, what I came to was the, the realization that my life was making a difference. It was uh, through my writing, through my clinical work, but I lived in my country comfort zone, kind of like Young and his little castle at Lake Bollingen. Yes. Uh, and, uh, but with the awareness that he didn't have, the ecological awareness, that uh, our planet is really in trouble. And I know something about this. Why aren't I doing something about it? And as soon as I made the decision to do something about it, the doors opened wide, and I've been incredibly busy ever since, in a good way. Beautiful, beautiful. Yes, I'm glad you had in a good way because uh, many people are busy as an addiction, but um, to to be useful to me is the most beautiful thing one can do, to be really useful, really useful from the heart through the mind is the most beautiful thing one one can do. So what happens, what has been happening since that first time with the 25 people when you had uh, taken the trash away from the skin of Mother Earth that you now, uh, the piece of skin that you now occupied? What happens between you and these people that you make community with? my work with Dr. Kakar in Chicago, I, I knew that community had to be a part of the teaching. What I didn't want was having workshops in hotels and big cities, people come in that don't know each other, they do the workshop, they learn some principles and techniques, and then they return home and then nothing else happens between them. Uh, to me, that feels very unshamanic. It's not how it's ever worked. And uh, so... I wanted a community, but what kind did I want? And I thought, okay, I saw in India this temple Balaji, where uh, it's kind of a last-ditch hope uh, clinic 
that the sacred temple to the god Balaji, uh, where people come that are uh, mentally uh, ill, insane, uh, dissociative, uh, psychotic. Uh, it's a famous, uh, there's several of them in India, but it's a famous uh, treatment center staffed with Buddhist uh, shamanic healers. And uh, it's just crowded with people, crowded with insane people, but crowded with their families. They're doing pujas and paying rupees for this ceremony and that. But the big healing ceremony, no matter what your illness is, is uh, on the second floor of the temple where the shrine of God Balaji is. And one of the Buddhist monks gets in front of that great statue and merges with Balaji. Mm-hmm. And then there's a direct dialogue that God speaks directly to the patient. And there's quite a struggle, actually, that goes on between the, the patient and the the family and the community gathered there, join in that dialogue too, but essentially overcome the mental illness of the patient in those ceremonies, bringing the entire weight of the community. And I thought, I want something like that, something like uh, a Navajo medicine society where you have many people who've been afflicted and they've overcome it, a particular illness or something, and then they pull together as a community to help others heal. And I thought, what a great model. It's like a sangha, you know, a Buddhist sangha. Mm-hmm. To, to have uh, a shamanic healing community d- devoted to healing on all levels, personal, uh, environmental, social, and so on. So that it was just an intention, though. I, I did not impose this on anybody. I didn't even tell people about it. I just encouraged it. And it grew into what I call self-community. It's mm-hmm. just a, a self-organizing self-adjusting, just like anything else in the gay and mind. Uh, uh, people come to it, it either resonates or it doesn't. With most of the comments, it does resonate. Uh, and uh, they begin helping out because even with 25 people or 50 or 300, I can't do everything, you know. So uh, the people have to figure out, okay, how are we going to support what's happening here? What role can I play? And so everybody's chipping in in some way. It has a role to play in the community. And it's really quite a beautiful thing. It's still a work in progress here and in France and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I'm now talking about it because it's a new concept, self-community. is something you allow the gay and mind to assemble and you, you cooperate with it. You, you attune to it and uh, you keep checking back with your own heart. Does this feel right? Does it need to feel out of balance? Yeah what new thing could enrich it, and so on. And what can we do that we're not doing? Why is it that many times uh, a sense of really feeling that we are in community, part of a community, cures what could be named as insanity? You know, I think... uh, makes ill, makes sick, and right love heals. And the more people gather together in the name of love, in the true radiance of love, uh, bring more healing power to bear. If you say, what is it in shamanism that's healing? I believe it's some form of loving energy. And uh, and I don't want to do it all. I don't want to be the channeler, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we do many kinds of healings together as a community, you know. 
and uh, let the spirit move through all of us, focused on the person that needs it. Or we do uh, ceremonies where we each participate uh, ecstatically in the healing uh, energies. So uh, wrong love creates isolation, dissociation, repression and suppression. Right love opens the heart, mends the heart, brings forgiveness, non-judgment, brings encouragement and support, and uh, sees the best potential in somebody. That's really beautiful, and I, I have a personal question for you. You have lived a very full life and will continue to live a very full life, and so... I want to ask you a twofold question. What has love become for you? And do you feel that there is love beyond human life? And I mean, beyond, uh, beyond our earth, which I believe is, is loving. Yes, I do. Okay. So what has love become for me? Uh, uh, something that is more present and more clear. Uh, one of my great uh, historic teachers is Dante Alighieri, mm-hmm. you know, the mm-hmm. great poet. And uh, the Commedia is really a story of the transformation of love. All the horrors of human hell that he describes are inverted forms of love. And uh, after witnessing them with his guide, Virgil, Then he embarks on a journey through Mount Purgatory, which means to purge, to cleanse, to purify. So he goes to a period of catharsis and purgation of these energies of hell that we all carry within us. Okay, but what you find in the Paradiso, when he finally gets into the upper world of glory and divinity, is it was love all along, even in hell. That was love that had the wrong object, you know. And so it perverted it. Uh, so you find the same kinds of characters uh, on a much higher level in the Paradiso. And that had a big impact on me. I, I had a teacher early on who was one of the great ladies of Union psychology, Helen Luke. And uh, she was an Oxford Dawn Italian scholar. And uh, she walked us through uh, the Commedia verse by verse when I was a young man. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, wow. There were people there like Thomas Thomas More and uh, David Bohm, the physicist, yes. and uh, Bede Griffiths, uh, and even Marie Louise von Franz, and um, uh, I can't think of her name now. Another uh, great lady uh, doing in psychology, and uh, May Sarton, the poet novelist. Mm-hmm. came to sit at Helen's feet. And uh, so it, it was her pointing these things out as we worked through Dante that fundamentally shaped my life. And she lives just down the road, or did, road from where I now live. So her whole lifestyle, which was uh, kind of monastic, influenced my own more shamanic union lifestyle. So love for me is something that can be clarified and increased and transformed in its uh um, in its authenticity, in what it is. And is there love beyond yours? Sure. With Dante, I have to say, mm-hmm. it moves the sun and those other stars. Mm-hmm. And um, my hope as we face the global crisis, 
particularly the, the planetary crisis, you know, the, deple- the depletion of resources, the fouling of air and water, the deforestation, the widening gap between the rich and the poor, the warfare that's, uh, you know, going on presently, and, and the threat of chemical and, and more nuclear warfare, all that I don't like to focus on. I'm very aware of it. Because when you focus on it, like uh, Ervin Laszlo does, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and I'm grateful to him for focusing on it, mm-hmm. uh, you can get very discouraged and think, well, what power do I have? What difference can I make? You know, it's so advanced, it's so bad, so we just bury our, our head and, and we don't look at that. But because of my faith and love and what exists beyond this life and is the ground and source of this great blue-green planet and every creature on it, uh, I am not discouraged when I rest in that realization. And when I rest in the realization that Mother Earth has always created out of loss, I think we should grieve the losses that have happened, the losses that are coming. And then we should move on and trust that she will bring new life out of the ashes and the rubble and the rust and the decay, as she has always done. Because the dinosaurs are gone, we are here. And so it's living in that faith that there is a creative source that undergirds everything that gives me the courage to do what I do. Mm. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. I often like to say we are the sun and the tree and the compost. I love it, I love it, yeah. Yeah. I remember a, a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh like that, you know, it's just, wow, yeah. fantastic. Compost, compost, <laughs> yes, beautiful. So um, let me ask you, is there anything that I have forgotten to ask you and that you would like to mention to our listeners? I think uh, there's one thing that I would like to say. Good. Uh, I've, I've pretty much said what my message here is and what my work is about. But uh, there is this piece, uh, uh, you know, like why shamanism, and it's just the, the form that resonates with me, the form of practice. But uh, because I was touched deeply by Jung's life and work, uh, I was able to see that uh, there's this archetypal dimension that is uh, universal, and if you can dig deep enough in your tradition, in your culture, no matter where it is on this planet, you will reach that wellspring that is the sacred and that is the source. And I believe we all have this shaman within us, or you can call it the jaguar within, or the Buddha within, mm-hmm. but uh, this is an image for the totality of what we are now and potentially can be, you know, our future totality as well as what we are at the moment. With all those possibilities and potentials that can be activated, downloaded, brought online in our lives. And uh, so in my shamanic teaching, uh, I create practices and spaces for people to journey within and uh, explore the range of seasonally relevant potentialities there are for their life, and to use their heart and select the ones that feel like they need to come on now in order that they can make a difference in the world. And uh, so for me, the shaman within isn't just the higher self, as uh, Jose Stevens has written. It's the totality. It includes your subconscious. It includes your ego personality. It includes the world in which you live. Uh, 
as a totality, we can bring that online from within ourselves and manifest it outwardly. Just the way somebody that sits Zazen for 20 years will progressively, hopefully, manifest more and more of Buddha nature. The mm-hmm. same idea. Mm-hmm. And, and so Crow's Nest, uh, in its teachings, it's like a teaching healing community, in its teaching aspect, is simply creating practices and opportunities to use them to learn how to do this. Thank you for that wonderful question. Oh, beautiful. And I hope everybody feels the way I do. You make me feel even more excited to be human. Yeah. (laughs) This was wonderful. Is there anything else you would like to say in closing, Mikhail? And uh, I thank you, and uh, I'm happy to know you, to meet you, and I, I can't wait to meet you in Santa Fe, and let's go party. Me too. Wonderful. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> let's send some more joy and laughter into the world and, and uh, be aware of our shadow and cry and scream and laugh some more. Yeah, yeah. Okay? All right. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. 